Well, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. It is great to see you. I hope you are going to have a restful, joyful week. Uh, members, don't forget to pick up your annual report. If you haven't yet, make sure you get this on your way out. And then come back tonight. We will meet at 6 o'clock for a members meeting. Uh, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper as a church family and go over some important uh, information, present our annual ministry plan to you, as well as we're super encouraged. We've, we've got some candidates for some leadership positions we want to propose to you tonight. Uh, we'll be uh, presenting Chris Smith as a candidate to be an elder here at the church, Nate Aiken to serve as a part-time minister of discipleship, and uh uh, we've got some other important votes coming up that we will be sharing with you. So get your annual report and come see us tonight at 6 o'clock if you are a member. Also, this is the time of year we celebrate missions. And on December the 8th, Wednesday night, we're going to have our annual Christmas banquet. And we use it as just a great time of celebration, but also to do some important uh, recognition and fundraising for our, our international workers. So be signing up for that. We look forward to seeing you on the 8th. Luke 16, I think a really timely message for us as we're journeying, journeying our way through Luke's gospel account to think about the importance of what do we do with the income and the wealth that we receive from the Lord. And being a season of giving, how essential that is for us as believers. So I was having a conversation with one of my grown children now who has a family and they're just getting started. And, and I was reminded of something that Tim Keller once said, that often our idols are revealed in our daydreams. And, and sure enough, we were doing a bit of daydreaming and we were just thinking about the future and raising a family and purchasing homes and investing in 401ks and all of that important stuff. And, and then we, you know, started talking about the difference between what do we do with the wealth that God has given us and investing as opposed to giving. And I was pleased that, and during this conversation, one of my children talked about a lifestyle cap, which is something I had instructed my children to consider, which is basically simply that you determine the amount of money that you need to spend to care for your family and care for your retirement and whatnot, as opposed to letting your income determine that so that if you happen to have more income than you need, that you give that away. And so rather than letting the wealth determine your future, you determine your future. And then you actually consider as a Christian the value of giving, giving back to what God has done so that, the, so that the desire to accumulate wealth would dissipate as, as the desire to give away wealth increases. And this goes directly to what Jesus is talking about here in so many other places where as Christians, we can replace the love of money with the love of giving and the love of stewarding what God has given to us. And so the question I, I want to ask you is, is pretty simple, and this is a good season to do it because we're all thinking about what are we doing with, with our wealth and income now at the end of the year and, and giving gifts and, and celebrating the holidays. The question simply is, what comes first when it comes to your money? 
what comes first? What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you receive your income? And, and if it is, okay, this is my money to be spent on me or my purposes, as opposed to this is an opportunity for me to give. This is an opportunity for me to serve. This is an opportunity for me to make an investment in the kingdom. It's a really important question. And what Luke 16 is going to help us to understand today is that our devotion to Christ promises us a place in heaven and it protects us from loving ourselves. There is this important, unfortunate correlation with you spending money on you and the amount of love you have for you. And yet Jesus would say, Devotion to him, devotion to his kingdom is a promise of what's in store for us in heaven and a wonderful protection from loving ourselves. Now, I want to show you um, who in the scripture loved themselves. And it's the Pharisees that Jesus so often found himself in contrast with. And, he, and, and so thinking about what loving devotion to Christ means know that part of what loving devotion to Christ means is that it keeps us from loving ourselves. As a matter of fact, it should help us to despise the love of ourselves. No servant can serve two masters. Luke 16 and verse 13. No servant can serve two, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, however, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things that Jesus was teaching, and they were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you're the type of people who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees, you know they weren't the type of people who desired Christ's kingdom. They weren't really interested in, in what Christ was offering them. Christ's message was, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Christ's message was, the greatest thing you can do is, is love your God, and then love your neighbor. And he talked a lot about the dangers of wealth, and he even talked about the curse of accumulating too much wealth. And the Pharisees would have nothing to do with that. They were the older brother, right, of the younger brother who was the prodigal son, and the prodigal comes back repentant, and the older brother just hates everything that's taking place because the father welcomes him back to the family, and, and the older brother says, hey, man, I, I've been here the whole time, and, and, and now you're even using my wealth to, to, to care for this younger prodigal. The Pharisees were the ones who manufactured their own religion. They, they decided to self-determine what it meant to be righteous. And, and in self-identifying as holy, right, why, why are the Pharisees holy? Because they said they were. They self-identified as being righteous. Why? Because they said they were. And in doing so, they, they justified their lavish lifestyles 
by simply self-identifying as saying, hey, we are righteous before God. And they loved it when people admired them for their wealth. I mean, they really were the forerunners of the prosperity gospel. Look at me. I am the most holy and the most righteous. Therefore, you ought to give a lot of money to me. God has blessed me because of who I am. But their love of money and their love of themselves, if you look clearly at the end of verse 15, was revolting to God. That's a strong word. It revolted God. Which reminds us that our devotion to Christ will help us from self-love. As a matter of fact, it should cause us to despise being like the Pharisees and loving ourselves. Now, Jesus is going to tell a story, and he's going to clearly describe the difference between the Pharisee and hopefully you today. And the second lesson is that our devotion to Christ will help us to desire heaven more than anything we can accumulate on this earth. And here's the story. There was a rich man, verse 19, who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. And he longed to be filled from that which fell from the rich man's table. But instead, the dogs would come by and lick his sores. Now, the first thing I want you to understand about the story that Jesus is going to tell, and Jesus often does this when he teaches parables, is he sets contrasts. And, and there's typically a, a faithful character in Jesus' story and an unfaithful character in Jesus' story, and then there's some sort of lord or master figure who oversees the story and provides a sense of judgment. This is often the way Jesus sets up his parables. And we're going to see it here today. There's going to be the unfaithful, extremely wealthy person, and there's going to be the faithful, extremely impoverished person, and then there's going to be the person who's going to provide the instruction, and this person is someone you may know is Abraham. And so this this rich man, which, by the way, has no name. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, but just know there's no name to this guy. He's just some no-named, incredibly wealthy dude. Now, the early church actually gave him a name, Dives or Divas. It's basically just a Latin word that means rich guy, so still no name. But he obviously was extremely wealthy because he had the, uh, the capability of dressing himself in purple and fine linen. And to dress yourself in purple basically meant that you could afford only that which royalty could afford. Purple linen was extremely valuable. They had to take this certain clam and cut it open and dig out the vein, and there was this rich purple color, and they would use a bunch of it to make royal fabric. I mean, very costly. And this guy was wealthy enough to afford it, and also he could, you know, afford fine linen. So his undergarments, the finest linen cotton from Egypt. You know, Egyptian cotton is supposed to be the best. 
It's the look and the feel of cotton, right? It's the fabric of our lives. And, and he was appreciating that all the time. And not only that, he, he not only occasionally went out to a five-star restaurant, he feasted lavishly every day. It was Ruth Chris Steakhouse or Angus Barn every day of the week. He was an extremely rich guy. And then, in contrast, there was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, laying at the gate of the rich man. And Lazarus was starving. So you, so you have the contrast of the guy who's living in luxury. He was, as I have learned uh, uh, how Southerners describe their wealth as comfortable. If you're really rich and you're from the South, you say, we're comfortable. He was comfortable. He was like more than comfortable. And, and then you have, uh, you know, this, this guy who, who, as far as we know, spent his fortune on himself. So he becomes the Pharisee who loves himself and loves money. And then we contrast this person with a beggar named Lazarus. Now, it is interesting that, that in all of Jesus' stories, this is the only time he actually gives a name to a character. It's usually one guy or another guy. He's actually naming him Lazarus. Some people would say this is a true story, that this actually happened. But the, the, the name Lazarus has meaning. It, it, it simply means the one whom God has helped. Lazarus, the one whom God has helped. But as you read the story, at least initially, it doesn't seem like God's helping him at all. I mean, he's extremely poor, homeless, starving to death, full of sores, diseased, and he's dying. And you just have to beg the question, Jesus, when you tell this story, why would you name him someone whom God has helped? doesn't seem like he's receiving much. But the key in, in Jesus telling the story is to understand the opposites that are taking place here. I mean, it is clear that he is setting these two characters aside, and just as opposite as they will be in this life, as we'll find out, they are opposites in the next. And Lazarus was covered with painful ulcers, probably considered an outcast by society, probably considered cursed rather than blessed, by God. Starving and, and destitute, he, his desire would just be a few crumbs that might fall off the rich man's table from the elaborate feasting. And there was no mercy shown to him by the rich man. No, only a little compassion by some dogs that would come by and lick at his ulcerated sores. No mercy, no compassion, no care, and then Lazarus dies. Verse 22. One day, the poor man died and, in great contrast, was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man, again, no name, also died and was buried. Now this pitiful, starving, 
diseased man obviously had repented of his sins and sought the kingdom. Because when he closed his eyes on the earth, he awakened himself there in the presence of paradise, which uh, any good Jew would, would describe uh, paradise or heaven uh, as Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. It was just a common way to describe the afterlife. And sure enough, Jesus uses the way a, a good Jew would describe heaven as, as being by Father Abraham's side and beginning to enjoy paradise with him. And so God, he tells his angels to escort Lazarus to heaven and to begin to enjoy paradise. No, no longer starving, now reclining at the feast with his covenant father. And then it says the rich man also died, and he was buried. Now, it doesn't say that Lazarus was buried because Lazarus wouldn't have been buried. I, I, his body probably cremated or, or just set aside. He didn't have any money for a burial. Obviously, the rich man had plenty of money for a burial, and I'm guessing that there was probably much pomp and circumstance that went along with the burial. But you know, the unfortunate thing about someone who's not a Christian who dies, that they don't celebrate their funeral. There's no opportunity for them to do so. You see, the man who lived in luxury, as soon as he closed his eyes in death, he awoke in the torments of hell. And so we see these extremes, both in life, now in the afterlife, what is the final result of the person who loves themselves? I mean, it's to the point where I think you have to consider how much you love yourself, but also the fact that self-love is a religion. A religion is a set of beliefs. It's what you believe about things. And so we have to determine that self-love is a religion. It's, it's, it becomes a, a lifestyle, a belief system for most people. And they orient their understanding and their reality around the center, which is themselves. The love of self becomes their faith. Now, obviously, Christianity is about removing ourselves from the center and putting Jesus Christ there at the center, and now everything evolves around Jesus and as Jesus is telling this story, now you can understand why he so often talked about the dangers of wealth. And it's not that money is our enemy. It's the love of it that becomes the provocation of many evils. And money is neutral. It's a tool. But the love of it is where then you decide you have a different master. And if you have a different master, you become a slave to that. It's the love of it. And this is why we have such strong statements against this, just the, in essence, desire to accumulate wealth. I mean, listen to the very strong words of James, chapter 5. Come now, you rich people. 
Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is rotted. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Kind of thinking now, you've accumulated all this wealth, and now you're gone. You can't enjoy it, and now it's just dissipating. Your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in these last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your field cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth, and you've indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, and you have murdered the righteous even those who don't resist you. And on and on again, I can show you passages in the Scripture that, that tells us the dangers of accumulating wealth, loving yourself, and how the Bible would say, isn't it so much better to be rich towards God, knowing that there's an end to this life, setting your affections on things above? Yes, Lazarus dies. The formerly rich man dies. Death is no respecter of persons. You're going to die. The Lord tarries. You will too. But those who die in their unrepentance will unfortunately and horrifically awake to the reality of an everlasting hell. Verse 23, and being in torment in Hades. If you've not placed your faith in Christ alone, and if you understand that because you are made in God's image, you have a soul. When your body dies, your soul has to go somewhere has to be a place for you. And, and you either are going to begin an eternity with Abraham in paradise, or you're going to end up like this formerly rich man in a place of torment, place of eternal suffering called hell. It is either or. You will either begin to experience the mercy of God forever and ever, or you will begin to experience the wrath of God for all of the sins that you've committed forever and ever. To sin against an eternal God demands eternal justice. It's just the way that God's character being perfect is. And, and, and so now Jesus, who, by the way, teaches us more about hell than anyone else. There's no other character in the scriptures, figure in the Bible that tells us more and gives us more detail about an everlasting uh, hell than Jesus himself, right? The two main things that Jesus talked about were avoiding the lust and the love of money, the dangers of wealth, and avoiding hell forever. Now, if that is the most important thing on Jesus's mind, I think we should talk about that more in the church. Because the reality is, Jesus is letting us know what the future. And that future will be coming to us sooner 
than I think we realize. And for this formerly rich man, he awakens in the torment of Hades. The Bible has always talked about this. In the Old Testament, the, the Jews would use this, this, uh, this concept called Sheol, which sort of was a, a, a kind of like a grave. It's like the place where people went when they died. They believed in the afterlife. And even in the Old Testament, Psalm 139, Amos chapter 9, there was this desire to ascend to heaven rather than to descend to Sheol or to the place of the grave or the dead. But what Jesus does is he begins to really add detail as to the joy of ascending to heaven. And the horrific danger of ending up in Hades. And so this, this unrepentant, formerly rich man who has no name is now in torment in Hades. And, and he looks up and he, he sees Abraham a long way off and, and guess who's right by Father Abraham's side? It's Lazarus. And he cries out across the great chasm, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Now, again, we don't know all of what the horrific existence of hell will be like. All we know is that Jesus gave us some clear analogies and descriptives of what this place will be like, the torments of what it will be like. And, and you see, outside of Jerusalem, there was this garbage dump. And it would be a place where you would take your garbage and just burn it. And there was always this horrifically smelling, smoky, dark, nasty uh, emanation from this garbage dump. And, and within the garbage, there would be worms that would just always be there and, and never die. This, this terrible place. And, and, and it was called Gehenna. Gehenna. It's just continually burning, smoldering, stinky, nasty place. And they burn their garbage there because they believe historically that that area is where the Canaanites used to sacrifice their children in fire to the false gods. So there was the, the burning of children, and they, just, they saw it as a despised place, as a cursed place, and the only thing it was good for was burning their garbage. In Gehenna, is what Jesus always goes back to when, he's, when he tries to help a Jew understand what hell is going to be like. This is, it's going to be like this. And, and here, the unfortunate no-named person now who's in torment, he looks across the great chasm and he sees Abraham. And there with him Lazarus, and being a good Jew, he calls upon Father Abraham to assist him. Interestingly enough, he commands Lazarus to leave paradise and enter into Hades and help him out. 
which is incredibly hypocritical, right? Since that he never helped poor Lazarus out while he was suffering at his gates. And even in hell, he was still filled with pride and self-love. Hell doesn't change the sinner. It just increases the sinner's sinfulness. There's no repentance in hell. Don't let anybody fool you. You only increase in your self-love and your hatred for God. There's no repentance here. He just wants to command Lazarus to come in and serve him. The torment was so great He just wanted a drop of water on his tongue to soothe his agony. What a reversal. Someone who just moments before, sitting in the lap of luxury, with more to drink and eat than he could ever want, now stricken in torment. And yet the one who starved to death, now enjoying paradise, by his covenant father, Abraham. Mm. You see, part of the reason why it's so important that we keep coming back to stories like this is because we don't realize the danger of self-love. What self-love does, it makes you apathetic to loving others because you're loving yourself. Self-love leads to complacency, the very opposite of love. The opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is, is apathy. And then this rich guy had become totally apathetic to the needs of someone at his own gate. He'd become complacent. And of course, now he's wanting mercy when in his life he showed none himself. It's interesting. There will be a day, Christian, when those who right now despise you for being a follower of Christ would beg that you would come and show mercy to them. There will be a day. There will be a day when those who desired Christ to be crucified and who have hated followers of Christ will do anything possible to receive mercy from followers of Christ. That day is coming. But unfortunately, the chasm will be too great to cross for them. Abraham responds. He says, son, he's, he's an Israelite. He says, remember that, that during your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony there. And besides this, this great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass from over here to there cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. Now, I don't know if this is a literal way that we need to understand heaven and hell and that if in heaven we will be able to peer into hell and vice versa. I don't, I don't know that. In the story, Jesus is adding these details. Help us understand the contrast. And then once you died and you're in the afterlife, there is no going back. You are now destined in this place. And, and, and so Jesus 
as he's telling this story, now it really, it really brings to life the very things that he had been teaching for years. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? And the first thing Jesus says in this great sermon is, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. And then a few verses later, the next thing he says is, cursed are the, are the rich. Blessed are the poor. Yours is the kingdom. Woe to you who are rich because you have already received your comfort. He's just telling a story that brings this to life. This, this formerly rich man's request cannot be granted. No, no, God is a God of justice. And so herein lies the horror of his situation. His torment is real and it will be forever. It cannot be undone. And so realizing that he is doomed, verse 27, the formerly rich man, now tormented man in hell who has no name, he then asks Father Abraham for another thing. He says, then I beg you to send Lazarus. Again, I don't know why he didn't want Lazarus to stay in heaven. I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. Maybe if, 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 if someone came down from heaven and revealed himself, maybe my brothers would believe. Maybe all it would take is someone coming down from heaven, it's Christmas season, hello, and revealing himself Maybe my brothers then would not end up here. But Abraham said no. Now they, they have the Bible. They have Moses. They have the prophets. In other words, they have the writings. It would be our Old Testament. Their scriptures. They, what do you, they've got the scriptures. They already have the truth. They should listen to them. Again, this... This man in torment pleads, no, Father Abraham, he says, but if someone from the dead is resurrected and goes to them, maybe then they would repent. Resurrect someone. Then they would see and believe. And, and make sure you look very closely at that word at the end of verse 30. They will repent. They will repent. See, that's the key. The repentant, regardless of how sinful they were, the repentant will enjoy paradise with Abraham and Jesus forever. The repentant. But the person who dies in their sin, unrepentant, will end up like this poor soul. But Abraham said, look, if they won't listen to Moses... And the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Hmm. Send a witness. Send a witness. Then they'll believe. Resurrect someone from the dead. Then, then they will repent. And here's where I find it interesting that, that Jesus gives a name to the guy in the story because it's not long after that Jesus would resurrect a man named Lazarus. And in John 11, after this glorious resurrection, proving the power of Christ over death, 
Two verses later, the Pharisees gather and they say, we've got to stop this man from performing all these signs. Let's kill him. They hated Lazarus and they hated the one who resurrected Lazarus. Paul said the Jews demand a sign. And the Gentiles, all they care about is knowledge. But I preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. An offense to them. And to those who simply think that, that their knowledge is good enough for them to figure out life. No, Christ crucified, buried, resurrection. That's the only way. And then, and so Jesus just reveals the reality of hell, but unfortunately, he reveals the religion of the Pharisee, just bound up in self-love, deciding they're going to self-identify as being good enough and, and figuring out a system where they can accumulate wealth and enjoy luxurious living not caring about the love of the neighbor and still in their own eyes be righteous. It's a dreadful thing to strive after that which is so temporary and perishing. And it is devastating to think that one day you might lose everything that you once loved. And that's my biggest concern for you today. Here's my biggest concern, that what you really love, you will lose when you die. If you will lose what you love when you die, it means you're loving the wrong things. Do not love the world, John says. Nor the lust of the eyes, nor the pride of life, because all the things in the world are perishing. The one who does the will of God, that's the person who will last forever. I don't want you to end up losing the things you love now. I want you to love the things now, the things that you will be able to love forever in heaven. So let's get our loves right. And let's make sure our devotion to Christ is at the center of our love. And friends, when when you get your loves right, what you do with your money will bring glory and pleasure to God. And then I hope that God blesses you with a lot that you can give. Care for your family and invest in all of these things. But when you get your loves right, not like the Pharisees, when you get your loves right, then what you do with what God gives you will bring him glory and it will help you to establish his forever kingdom. Let's pray. Father, of all the times of the year for us to be reminded that it is more blessed to give than to receive, we need this message. We who live in such a, an affluent culture, we who are so focused on accumulating, we, we who have such a strong tendency to love ourselves, we don't even know it. By your spirit, I'm asking, help us to get our loves right. And Father, I pray today that the reality of an eternal hell 
will become real to someone who has yet to place their saving faith in Jesus. I pray that they wouldn't end this day, go to sleep tonight, without repenting of their sin and claiming Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And Father, I, I pray that, that there might be this gnawing, increasing dread that they're lost, and that they would soon repent, claim Christ, and begin to live the joy of heaven on this earth. Father, do a good work as we finalize our worship today in each and every heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.